Thank you for listening to The Digital Backpack. This episode was first published on March 28th of 2017, when the podcast was called Campfire. track i'm not good at counting so aaron over there jeff over here what up this is this is campfire this is pickles that one wasn't as good a crunch wish you could see my face right now (laughs) are you mad are you upset are you excited i'm like giving you my teacher look right now like really (laughs) sorry i've been kind of like this all week though all week. So you mean like Monday and today? <laughs> yeah, for a day and a half. It's been crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sun is shining. Is the sun shining where you are? It is shining. Beautiful day. Our snow is all melting. Yeah, our pavement is wet. Is it? Grass is wet. I took Griffin out last night. It's the first time he's been outside without a coat on. Nice. Uh, well, this season. I guess, but when you're an infant and you're just getting carried around, I don't really consider that being outside. Right. Uh, so we're looking forward to spring, looking forward yeah. to summer, and looking forward to when he figures out that, uh, what is it, the cozy coop? Yeah, the mm-hmm. cozy coop that he's mm-hmm. got, that it's powered like friends, Fred Flintstone's car. <laughs> Leela moved backwards in hers for a long time. <laughs> Did she? Yeah. Forwards, not so much. Backwards, a little easier. Yeah. But if you think about it, like, it's pretty easy to just push it backwards, right? Moving forward takes some effort. He did that a little bit. They've got a false bottom in it. I don't know if uh, Leela's model had a false bottom in it. um, Hers is like a $4 garage sale model. (laughs) Oh. Ours is a from the grandparents model. Gotcha. Nice, sparkly, new. And um, ours is of the dad put it together with a thousand pieces variety. So I was feeling pretty accomplished with that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it has like this little black, like fake bottom thing that you can clip in there. And then it's just like he just sits in there like it's a bassinet or something and then just gets pushed around. So we put that in there for a little bit. And then Julie was confused as to why it was in there and she took it out and then he didn't move at all. And (laughs) then she figured out why it was in there. So we put it back in. Cool story, right? And then the neighbors, what's awesome. So for those that aren't Aaron listening to this, Griffin is 13 months old. And the neighbors saw us outside and drove their truck over and was like, hey, when did you have a kid? <laughs> like, oh, about 13 months uh, a ago. Year, a year ago? No? Yeah. Okay. So. I feel like they don't leave quite the uh, destruction outside when they're that age, though. Just wait. He will. I'm glad that they now know that you guys are a family of 
I mean, like four if you count the dog. I don't know. We count our dogs. So. Yeah. yeah. Reiki, Reiki is a member of our family. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, dude. Let's talk. Let's like click it back to our teacher days and talk about what was your favorite grade level to teach and why? Me first? Yeah. Pressure's on. Huh. Hmm. Mine's tough because I only spent, uh, I only have one grade level where I taught multiple years in a row in uh, at that grade okay. level. So for a little bit of background on me, I started with uh, 11th, 12th graders with AP government uh, when I was doing a long-term sub for uh, one of my former colleagues, uh, eventually former colleague. Uh, that's a weird statement. Anyway, uh, then I got uh, then I got hired mid year and went over and taught tenth or ninth, tenth, and eleventh grades. They kind of just cobbled a, a schedule together for me for the second half of that year, and I inhabited the the room of my social studies colleagues. I, I inhabited their room during their prep hour. Oh man! And was on a cart. Oh, so. That's so that was like my high school uh, tour de force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then then uh, I spent a year being laid off and working on my master's degree. And then I got hired back a full school year later and was teaching seventh grade then. And the year after that, I went back to 10th grade. And then uh, the two years after that, I went back to teaching seventh grade. Okay. So seventh grade is like my bread and butter because it's what I taught the most, right? Mm-hmm. And I I actually think that I'm a middle schooler at heart, and I really like I I it for me it's all about the kids' attitudes and everything like that. I think middle schoolers are squirrely, but generally I think they have a little bit more of the wonder of the world left in them, and they're like can be genuinely engaged if you're up to the challenge of engaging them mm-hmm. where the, the older you get, the more analytical the kids are and the deeper the conversations you can have, but uh, the, the higher likelihood of apathy, right? The older you get in high school, but I'm going to answer too. I really liked my AP government kids uh, or my AP political science kids because the content was awesome and it was my first semester teaching and we just jumped in and and learned together and so it was like a really cool learning community that that we established partly because i think i was a little bit underqualified to be their teacher for that course and um i was aware of it and kind of just embraced the role of learner myself and and was open and honest with them that that's what it was and so I had a really good rapport with the with that group. But seventh grade is I I love the age and I like the content. I'm more of a um, like a world like I, I like world history. I like uh, anthropological stuff. So like when we look at cultures and things like that and then geography, I think um, I could look at maps all day. So the content itself was great for me, too. Nice. Well, that was like a walkthrough of why I like all of these different grades. How about you? <laughs> what, what was your favorite grade level to teach and why? So my situation is similar to yours. I started off and I had two jobs in two different high schools where I was teaching like high school civics or government, high school U.S. and high school world. 
which I really love that content of high school U.S. when you're getting into the different wars and you're getting into, you know, like these massive kind of cultural shifts too. World history was tough for high school because it's like, here's the history of the world in a half of a school year. And that felt overwhelming. But then I, I moved back to my hometown and took a job as an eighth grade social studies teacher. And I, I completely agree with you. There's something kind of beautiful about that middle school age where uh, I joke, they still want you to like them a little bit, right? Where some high schoolers, like you said, are pretty apathetic and are like, yeah, I don't really care if you like me or not. They care less um, if you like them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like a cool, a cool situation too, where, you know, they keep you young, um, but you're kind of helping mold them into the individuals that they're going to be. And it's cool to see those changes that happen throughout the year and how they do grow up. I feel like seventh and eighth grade, especially are like years of a ton of psychological growth for kids too. So it's always interesting to be able to watch that happen. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a middle schooler too at heart forever. Forever, ever? <laughs> Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Right. What are you digging this week? Can you dig it? I feel like you need to have that be that the um, segue music. Yeah, I should. I, I should. We can dig it. Can you dig it? <laughs> it no? Maybe, okay. maybe that'll make a special appearance. Awesome! At some Can't point. wait. I really like the Warriors movie, though. That's it is pretty like the first thing. Came... So. What we're digging this week is a web app called Bounce, and you can get to Bounce by bouncing over to B-O-U-N-C-E, as in Bounce, and App, A-P-P, so Bounce App, all together, dot com. And Aaron and I, this is new to Aaron and I, we were looking for quick and easy annotation tools, because we were theming this podcast for literacy. And you're going to hear a little bit later that uh, uh, Rochelle Weinkoop is going to talk a lot about marginalia and, uh, you know, annotations and digital literacy as a whole. Some things that we really like about Bounce. One, uh, I really like that it can be an accountless entry. Sometimes it's good to have accounts tied to apps. Sometimes it's desirable to not have them. For this one, with it being so independent and so focused on annotation, I like that you can go in and have students start annotating without uh, without accounts. And it does have an option to attach your name to them. And it, it's pretty simple at the top. Just uh, it says, hey, stranger, what's your name? The other thing, too, is I, uh, I don't know if you felt the same way, Aaron. I thought that the prompts that they oh, give you to kind brilliant. of guide you around are kind of fun. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's really plain Jane. What happens is you put in an address to a web page that you want Bounce to take a screenshot of. And it, it sends it out to outer space or someplace. And when it comes back from Jupiter, it's a flat screenshot of whatever web page you put in. So I did the Free Press main page and Aaron did, what did you do, the New York Times? New York Times, yeah. Yeah. And so it was kind of interesting how we both did the main pages of online newspapers. 
you click and drag and you can highlight an area or just box in an area and then it will give you an option to add a comment to it. So the way that the page ends up looking is all of these boxes you can hover over and then there's comments that are attached to them. Okay, I want to throw one thing out real quick. So when you are taking the screenshot, the cool thing is it gives you like the entire page all the way to the bottom. So if you've ever tried to take a screenshot of something to send to someone, you know, you like zoom out as far as you can go. So it's super tiny so you can get the whole page. I thought that was really cool when we were using it that you could just snag that and then um, have the entire page, not just the part that was viewable within your browser. Yeah, I thought so. that it was cool too. I actually made a mistake uh, thinking that it was chopped off, and then I scrolled down. And I was like, "Wow, it's the whole, it's the it's whole darn page." There. So, when you think about it in terms of a classroom use, I think it could be a really awesome way to model for students how to interact with the text and how to annotate text. Um, I know that there's a lot of of practice doing this on pencil and you know paper pencil, but sometimes it feels like it's a little bit trickier to do with the digital text. So like you said, I think this is a really simple, easy entry way to be able to show students, here's how I interacted with this text. Now you take some some time. And it's a super easy link share too, right? They just give you the option to share at the top. You click it, there's a link and you could share that. So students could even work on that you know, within your classroom and then share the link with you either in like your learning management system or shooting you an email with it, whatever you wanted to do. In my class at the start of the year, we did like a digital citizenship and digital literacy building unit just because of the the amount of interaction with uh, the internet as a place for learning that we would do throughout the year. It just was a good practice to, to start off the year with that. And something that we worked on was identifying the different parts of websites and like using, you know, inferring what things are and why things are organized the way that they are and just kind of walking through the thinking behind why students thought that websites were organized the way they were and pulling out clues to try to infer meaning and things of that nature. And so I really like that this will take screenshots of the full web page as opposed to just stripping out the text. Yeah. There are some tools that strip out just the text, and that's good when you want to minimize the noise and focus students just on the text. But this itself and the, and the way that uh, you and I did the example, we started pulling out, you know, different articles and, and inferring as to what those articles might be about with only seeing a preview of them, right? Right. I went through and I was like identifying how the Free Press's front page was organized and just kind of calling out like, oh, here's a weather box. Here's an ad. Here's a featured article. Here's the list of all the most recent articles. And you can click on those things. So it was nice to be able to just highlight an area with a box and, and add a comment, adding context, explaining why, and then get a quick link to, to fire off to a teacher or in this case to fire off to Aaron to see if we could do bounce for what we're digging. One big thing to keep in mind, it's a really simplistic tool. It's designed to be focused on identifying and annotating within a single document or website page or whatever like that. So if you've got a specific purpose 
for having them interact with just one web page, one link, then it's, it's going to be a really good tool. It's also not going to be the greatest for collaboratively annotating. I went mm-hmm. through and you can't reply to other people's comments uh, that they annotated. I think I can go in and I'll test this out right now. I can add annotations to the document that Aaron shared with me. So I just added it to there. So it, there could be a collaborative element where we're doing our own individual annotations, but we can't really reply to each other's annotations. So that's something to, to keep in mind that if that's a focus of yours, you probably want to select a different tool. Woohoo! Yeah. Other than that, I think it's pretty cool. It you should go cool. check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a cool, quick thing. I could even see like working, you know, back and forth between colleagues on this. Like, if somebody has a, a quick question, it's a really easy way to annotate a screenshot. Here's your answer, right? Just send it back. So it's like a text. Oh, tech yeah. Coach. And- that could be valuable. Yeah. All right. So check out Bounce. Yeah. Uh, we are so excited this week because we have another dear friend. I feel like all of our podcast guests are just awesome peeps to have on. And this week is no different as we welcome Rochelle. So Rochelle is the Supervisor of Secondary and Professional Development at Port Huron Area School District. She's also an avid hiker. She hikes all the time. She loves to read. Uh, I could probably say that she's a, a University of Michigan fan. And she is, yeah, just a little bit, um, a contributing member of the Mish Ed group. And I want to say maybe even like one of the founding members. I don't know. Maybe that's going a little too far. But she was definitely one of the people that was on to Mished early on has, and has been just a great promoter of that group and their cause. Hi, Rochelle. How are you? I'm doing all right. Hey, I'm hoping that the background noise that you're not hearing a lot of it. I can't, it hear, I can't hear anything. Can you, Jeff? I just hear the Spartan fight song. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you see what Mastin posted on my page last night? No. Conveniently, conveniently just doesn't discuss or respond to any of the basketball stuff, but (laughs) hockey sweeps. So I get a video posted on my page just of the hockey sweep thing. But let's just ignore it. And I always throw out swim because, you know, I'm a swim mom. No one else cares, but I do. So I retaliated with a swim, which I find is relevant as hockey. So anyway. (laughs) That's fantastic. Hockey is the center of my universe, Rochelle, so... I know, Jeff. I'm sorry. So you were probably really excited, as you should be. My only defense is that um, Michigan's best player was sent to the Blackhawks this year. So, you know, the, the fact that he happens to be from my hometown and his parents are both teachers in my hometown and taught my kid and his mom's probably the best teacher I've ever worked with in my life. Like her and Tara, I would sit the two of them in a room together and you would just watch magic happen. It's amazing. That'd be awesome. What, where yeah. is your hometown? I'm curious about this. St. Clair, you knew that. I, well, I thought I did. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so Tyler Mott, currently with the Blackhawks. That's a pretty, pretty sweet claim Not to only be. just with the Blackhawks, but like um, performing and contributing from game one. And my last Michigan fact uh, in the Go Blue versus Go Green smackdown is that the University of Michigan was actually a university before the state was even a state. So there's that. Just, just saying, just throwing just, that out there. I was told to be prepared with SmackDown. That's what I got. <laughs> good. Good. Well, there's going to be more coming at you later. So oh, no. I won't know trivia, so that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably, Mastin will kick my hiney in that one, but that's all right. Speaking of which, you have to have your trivia sound effects ready for later. Oh, time. I'll get them ready. Oh Rochelle, no! You get the treat of um, we'll do we'll do trivia later. Let's chat first. But you okay. get the treat of Jeff and I being in the same room for our podcast oh, today. This is not that doesn't happen. happen often. No, no. I have a feeling that's not necessarily good for me. But I bet you guys are having fun. We are having fun, and it will for sure be good for you. <laughs> I signed up for your pre-con, by the way. <gasps> Yay! Yeah, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> I'm excited about that. <laughs> nice. Nice. If you seriously, if you're gonna do Michigan, Michigan State uh trivia, I am definitely gonna lose. So I'm just throwing that out there. You can't give me like hiking trivia or I don't know. I mean, Something. it wouldn't be quite as much of a throwdown between you and no. Mastin if it were just no. Mastin's, Mastin's Mastin's gonna win. I'm just a faker. I didn't actually go. Mastin I mean, actually spent time how I there am with with Michigan State. I didn't actually go there, but I have that affiliation too. Several of my friends went there. All of the ones that Michigan wouldn't let in. But there's that. <laughs> That is a true story of a friend. That you get. That's that's my husband's story. He couldn't get into U of M because his high school counselor at the time, that was when like you had to take a foreign language class. And his high school uh-huh. counselor never told him. Neither of his parents went to college, so they didn't really know the whole process. So he couldn't get into U of M. So he went to <laughs> No, it's a true story. Like my friend's family, they went to every Michigan game. Her brothers were cheerleaders and rugby players. And um, she actually had a higher GPA and higher ACT score. But we had a really competitive year. It was the difference between the 70s, late 70s, and the 80s, and um, she didn't get in, and that's why she went to Michigan State. And she doesn't like when you bring up that conversation now, but that's a true story. So I'm a Spartan who's never you. applied to the University of Michigan, so uh, we are out there. <laughs> All right, Rochelle, well, we know your time is limited, so let's, let's jump in. I know you can talk about them. Michigan, Michigan State all day too. Forever. One of the ways that we love to start with our guests is just asking them if they ever went to summer camp as a kid. So did you ever? I did. I did. I did go to summer camp. I went to a um, church music camp 
which is really funny because my husband and my son are both very musical, gifted piano players and singers. And my husband and I hadn't been married for very long and we were driving down the road and a Taylor Dane song came on and that woman can just belt it, right? So I made the comment, I'm like, gosh, I wish I could sing like that. And my husband looked at me and said, I wish you could too. And that was the end of my singing career. <laughs> I've never met your husband, but I feel like I need to. <laughs> that was such a glorious setup for an abrupt ending. <laughs> so um, I I also got sick at camp. So I spent three of the seven days in the nurses thing. I had to be taken to the hospital uh, and get a shot. Oh my but gosh. the days that I actually participated, I like I really liked it. I had a great time. Um, so yeah, they were all, they were all church camps. That was my first, that was my first camp experience. Then we had more like youth group getaways, but, um, yeah, musical church camp. That's awesome. On Lake Huron. Um, I went to a basketball camp that was like a week long. That's what Jeff and I, we had like basketball camps. Those were our summer camps. Mm -hmm. Um, but I came home and I felt miserable. I had fevers. It was the middle of summer, and I had to go to the hospital and be hospitalized for salmonella. We think it was a, a rogue <laughs> nugget from the cafeteria. No, I wasn't sick at camp, but I do have a similar experience. But you brought home sickness. Oh, yeah. Salmonella poisoning. That was like IV antibiotics for a week, the hospital for a oh, weekend. Oh, gosh. That, that's Don't great. No, no, I, no I'm, a, I'm a little bit older than you guys, and... Um, uh, in my neck of the woods, camp wasn't like a standard thing that most of us went to. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, when we kind of did the, the little pre-survey, we asked you what was going on in, in your camp, so to speak. And you just had a few things that you listed, which we would expect <laughs> no less from you. Um, but some I'm of the sorry. Things I, I controlled myself. I limited it to my big three <laughs> questions. <laughs> I love it. That's what we love about you, Rochelle, is that you're always you're always diving in and learning more and just trying to share with people what you think are best practices. So some of the things you mentioned were K-8 literacy review and adoption, some bond work, personalizing learning at the secondary level, preparing for a one-to-one, and then content <laughs> literacy in the digital realm. So I know that Jeff has um, about 17 questions coming at you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let him take I should have thought his- about, do I have answers to these things? <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I'll, I'll turn it over to Jeff to ask you his question. All right. Yeah, so with the, the bomb proposal and the one-to-one stuff, that seems like a like the most tangible of things that that could occur with uh with the work that you're doing with your organization um is is that something that is just kind of an interest to you are are you already uh have you already passed a a bond proposal and gone one-to-one um give us a little bit of background of like your experience with that so um in the district i was at previous 
to where I am now. We had a bond proposal that passed and we went one-to-one -one at the high school, so I was part of that rollout. So it's been interesting to bring kind of that experience to a much larger district. We are grateful to our community. They passed a large bond for us in August, our second time bringing it. And so really we're in the planning phase because um, a lot of people don't understand how that bond worked, how, how it kind of unrolls. But if it was past the first week in August, which means you then have to go like we couldn't even purchase the bonds until December or January. So there's a lot of planning that goes into it before you can even see things roll out. So there's been, there's been a lot of planning. And I don't want to act like the, like the bond is just one-to-one -one because at this point that's really just increased technology, having the infrastructure and having enough student devices, even if it's one to one, you know, two or three to one, um, making the decisions about do students take devices home? Do all students take those home? Do you limit it to age groups? That's just part of instructional practices at this point. So it's a lot of the planning, but it, it's not the majority of our bond. Uh, a lot of it has to do with spaces and learning spaces. And I think that the two of them go hand in hand. So if we want instruction to be different and technology is a piece of that, it's really difficult to do in the 1900s classroom, both from infrastructure, the way desks are set up, and even helping teachers visualize, especially at the secondary level, how you do things outside of rows. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of tying into that, I, I mentioned that that was the most tangible of the bullet points. And what I meant by that is I think that when we're talking one-to-one -one, uh, proposals and and even when you're talking about like devoting funds to classroom design spaces and, and purchasing things to go into those spaces, those are easily understood because they're physical goods, right? Mm -hmm, right. Applying a district or an ISD or, or whatever it is with physical items you know, sometimes you you buy those things hoping that it will create opportunities for teaching and learning. And sometimes you intentionally have an idea of what teaching and learning is going to be looking like uh, once you make those purchases. So what are the teaching and learning conversations that are being had or the opportunities that you hope to see um, being enabled with uh, funds being allocated for technology and for classroom design? Well, that's a great question, and I think in that question kind of are all the rest of the pieces that I lift, listed that we're working on. So there's a management of students on devices that cannot be overstated. It really changes your classroom, and when we talk about management of a classroom, you would think that adding devices, a teacher with good management, would intuitively understand how that becomes a part of it, but my experience is that's not, that's not true, especially if a device is assigned to a student. I think we have to be very intentional about helping the student and the teacher understand what that means if it's a student device, because there's still an appropriate time to use them, and there's also appropriate ways that we use it. So how does that device become a way that we instruct differently, that we personalize, that we allow for student choice? But it's not something that we can just leave students to kind of go off on their own, right? 
So a lot of the training and thinking is not just about what devices do we have and when do we order them and how do you roll it out to 17 buildings and almost 9,000 students. You know, those are the logistical things. But behind that, you have to have teachers and students ready for what it means when you are in a technology-rich environment. And there, there's a lot of shifts that go on with that. So that kind of leads to the digital literacy focus that we've had because content literacy is an instructional focus for us. And I just took that to the next level and have been intentionally offering professional development that is labeled under preparing us for a one-to-one -one environment. And what do we, and what do we do with that? So content literacy is something that's ongoing. I, I think teachers still need a lot of work around that. It's a big ask. And moving to the SAT at the high school level has teachers having a better understanding maybe about what the Common Core means by that and how challenging those texts are. And then we introduce students, we have them do everything digitally, right? And we don't give them the tools, the strategies of how you interact with that digital environment. So by helping teachers know instructional practices and how those may be different in a digital environment, you're setting them up to manage those devices in the classroom by giving them the why. Why is it there? What do we ask students to do with it? The planning around it and then the intentional things that need to be done differently with students when they have those that's awesome. Sorry, Michelle. that just went on and on. <laughs> no, I think that's really what we were trying to get at, too, that so many schools, um, not so many, but some schools just jump into things and, and purchase things without really doing that pre-work or preparing teachers or thinking about that intentional integration as opposed to, well, the teachers and the students will know what to do, right, if we give right. them these, these devices. Right. So I think that's really important. I would love to hear more about digital literacy. You know, I've sat in some of your sessions before where you talk about how reading is different when it's digital. <laughs> and as a, as a person who went through reading apprenticeship and uh, that had a huge impact on my teaching, um, I really, that really resonates with me and I think it's really important. But I think, again, that's another oversight that we don't always think about. So would you mind just kind of expanding on how are you, how are you working with teachers on that reading digital text and how is it different or what should we be focusing in on in general? Um, a couple of years ago, I read a great article. It was in the New Yorker. It's by Maria Konakova and she's a researcher and had done a lot of work on the history and science of the reading brain. And she did she did their major research and published a book called Proust and the Squid, and she looked at the reading brain from antiquity to the 21st century. And then as soon as she was done with it, she realized it was almost obsolete because of this new digital age. And she was getting a lot of questions around digital reading and essentially kind of started a review of studies and digging in deeper and knew that her work wasn't done. So she was the first one to kind of dig into that. You know, we've had for younger students in learning to read. We've had pediatricians and, and we've had other people weigh in on giving some limitations to students and what they think is appropriate screen time and, and how the brain learns. But there hadn't been a lot on actual, at the secondary level, like beyond that, but reading for, for information. And I think it's because it's assumed that once you know how to read, 
then you can just read for information. So she was the first one that kind of looked at at what the differences are. And I think it's I think it's important for teachers to know that. I think it goes to assessments as they move online, right? So it, it is different doing paper and pencil to doing online. But it also is a difference that our we know our brains are really elastic. So our kids are going to be different the more time that they spend on devices, and this is going to continually shift. So she found a couple of things that were really practical, and part of it just even has to do with how the eyes track and how we read, and then some of it has to do with the intentionality of how we do things digitally. So I just help teachers kind of look at that. We we actually do some close reading strategies around the article. That's kind of how I've started with it, uh, are doing our own close reading strategies, and a couple of things have come out of it, and this is really, I'm giving away a couple of my uh, sessions I'm doing at upcoming conferences. So they can just listen to this and don't have to come to my, come to my sessions. But they need um, to come to see you in person because it's even better in person. So really the biggest mistake that I see that teachers make, and this is me included, because I'm only two years out of the classroom, when we assign text for students, especially at the secondary level and especially once they get to high school. We assume that they know how to closely read a passage. We have them focused on what we want them to do with the information and we forget to slow down and that you need more than one read of a text if it's going to be done in any way to analyze it and not just for pleasure. There needs to be more than one reading and the first reading needs to be a close reading. How are we understanding Understanding what the text is saying to us, not in light of supporting an argument or looking for examples or examining transitions, but just a really close what is the article saying. So we help them with, with digital strategies, which I, Jeff knows this from earlier conversations, <laughs> that marginalia is one of my favorite <laughs> words <laughs> and my favorite things to do. And I can always bring literacy back to marginalia. But marginalia is an interaction between the reader and the text. It's almost like a conversation. And starting with that grounding of what the text is saying to us and having that very intentional conversation, that needs to be a first read. And I think we believe that because students are so digital that they don't need that extra support. Yet, if we gave them a deep text in print, we would intentionally ask them to do some things with it. So really the first quick thing in content literacy that moves digitally is that you have to transfer those deep reading. You have to have them do that digitally because students tend to read digital text. They use skim and scan even more so than they do with print text. And that's even with a really deep text that's difficult to do. So how do you slow them down? The great thing about digital is that there's so many vocab strategies moved in, right? Built in. Just about any digital tool you read, you use to read, whether it's online or whether it's in a Google document, if, you, if you've put it in there, they can look up words automatically. So you don't get slowed down by that. Kids can get the definitions for things. My favorite little trick for marginalia is just that you use a Google Doc and the comment section becomes your marginalia and your interaction with the text. 
and have students intentionally doing those close reading strategies and you're analyzing and making sure that they're getting that, that you can see what they're doing. And then you ask them to go do whatever the assignment is, whatever's content related, but you have to slow them down when they're, when they're reading digital text. So you need some strategies to do that. I'm in love with everything you're saying. I'll just put that out there as like a a statement so that I can build off of it. Something that you said that's really resonated with me because I've been doing a lot of reading on literacy development in adolescence. There's a lot of emphasis right now, and justifiably so, about preparing students for that second grade threshold, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, recently, we've seen the rise of the importance of the informational text in secondary content. And Aaron and I are, are secondary teachers in, in non-ELA content areas. So I think that this kind of resonates with us. We look at what the, uh, the Common Core, as an example, says about informational texts in the, in the non-ELA courses and, and see, it, see obvious connections to, for, for Aaron and I, are, you know, it's, it's primary documents and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Mm-hmm. And so we have a tendency to look at what those informational texts would be for our particular content area. We're still in a very content area centric mindset, I think. And I don't, I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb to say that at the secondary level where. No, I think that's uh, fair. Where we, we consider that helping rather than. Um, <laughs> we, we can, we consider thinking about the text that we could influence students with as helping, but. As I've as I've been reading more and more uh, about this, um, like close reading is something that has stood out for me. In our content areas, without the kind of expertise that language instructors have, uh, we've tended to think about the complexity of informational text and informational text appropriateness for the grade level that we're at. Trying to choose texts that are, we think that if we choose a a text that's appropriately leveled, that it's gonna be able to be accessible uh, by our students. And I think we kind of overthink that a little bit because then we get into how can we strip it down? Or how can we make sure that, um, you know, do a little uh, pre-regurgitation for for students? And, And oftentimes that, I mean, that turns into what lectures are, mm-hmm. you know, dissemination of initial learning, where what what I'm starting to evolve in my thinking of looking at cognitive psychology with Bransford, for example, or just literacy best practices. If we start at a section of text, I mean, we can we can focus learners on um, chunks of informational text rather than the full uh, the full gambit of like a primary document, for example. Um, and I think that that's what you're referring to when you when you talked about you know in in these digital spaces, we have to be careful because quantity there's a lot of quantity of text, and so the natural tendency for uh, for readers is to skim, right? Because mm-hmm. how you absorb quantity is by s- speedily absorbing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if we're able to to focus readers on a manageable quantity of text. And then we we also say, okay, we're going to utilize our close reading strategies on this. And content content people, like a social studies teacher, actually intentionally calling out close reading strategies and say, we're going to start individually. We want to read for understanding at this point. And we're going to have time. We're going to let this breathe. 
And after we do our close reading, okay, let's let's pair share and let's talk about what we read. Now, now here's some guiding questions. Talk amongst your table, it, whether that's a digital interaction. Maybe we're um, we're in actively learn or something like that, and we're carrying on a conversation or a, a Google Doc. We're carrying on a conversation in the document with comments, right? I think the the key isn't necessarily digital or or uh, or face to face at that point. Both have their affordances, and and as we go down that path of developing it, we've we've got to make those considerations. Like what what's going to be powerful for me? I've got my kids. Do I have my kids face to face enough for this? Is a face to face interaction appropriate? What do digital tools do? How can I how can I blend that? That's a that's a conversation for later. But the the whole uh, power of an interaction like that comes in the decision making of saying, here's the text I want us to focus on. We're going to start with close reading and we're going to use different processing activities, different application activities to kind of breadcrumb this out so that we let that breathe. We know that primary learning is going to come from the document itself, not any sort of degree of, I mean, minimal front loading, right? I'm not going to front load it with parsing it out and, and giving you a lecture on it first and so that you're over prepared to read this. The learning itself, primary learning is going to take place in that close reading. I think my thinking has gotten to the point where that is what we need to be thinking about when we're talking about informational text and having students interact with informational text is that we need to think of scaffolds in in the sense of those literacy strategies, not necessarily in unpacking the content because it's too difficult for kids. I think there's a value that's <clears throat> underrated sometimes in the struggle. And I don't mean a, a student who's struggling far below grade level. I think it goes to what you said about front loading, right? And, and this is what I talk about when we talk about instructional shifts. Almost all of us who were trained as educators, we were trained to be the people who knew the content and how we help students access the content. And it, it was the knowledge coming from us or the materials that we provided and how we scaffold them. It wasn't about the student um, struggling to make their learning. And like you pointed out, the ways that you could make that about, you know, they call it argumentation in the practices, whether it's ELA or science or math. But the truth is argumentation has a negative connotation for most people, but argumentation is really just the conversation about text and you having to have proof or support for what you take away or how you do that. And you addressed that when you talked about how you could approach having a chunk of text that a student kind of accessed on their own and then you start to have whether it's pair shares or however you could do it digitally with the conversations and forums but you start having that interaction and that conversation around what we know or around what the questions are instead of just like you said front loading them all and I, I do think it's important to know that you know some of that is done much better face to face and that's one of the questions that you have to consider especially as you're going to a one-to-one -one or, or technology rich environment and that's where the blended best practices come in, what is best face-to-face -face and what is best online, and what you can take advantage of online that you can't face-to-face -face and, and vice versa. And those become the important instructional decisions where before it used to be what I'm going to teach and how I'm going to front load them, right? Now it becomes about those practices and what, what different 
setups allow students to kind of wrestle with their learning in different ways and be supported differently. Rochelle, I just listening to both you and Jeff, I think about the, you know, as an eighth grade social studies teacher, I used to assign work primary sources, tough reading. My students would come back and they wouldn't understand it. And so I would just explain it to them. And then when it got time to think about assigning more reading, I would just not do it, right? Because they, they weren't getting it and it was easier for me and took less class time, which sure. sounds horrible. But when you're pushing, pushing, yep. pushing to, yep. you know, to take a state test about content that happens mm-hmm. in May or June and the test is in April, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. trying to get to that yep. spot. Um, and so for me, having the, this reading training and thinking about if I spend this time up front, if I spend, you know, three days, maybe four days spaced out, but I teach them how to read and how to overcome roadblocks and how to do that initial document scan, that, that first reading that you talked about, how much more value there is later on in the school year. But I think sometimes there's this thought in teachers' heads like, well, this is taking too long and I have to keep pushing through content so I can't keep doing it rather than let's teach them how to do these things. Well, I think you bring up another important thing to consider, Erin, and that's what is the role of assessments? And I think a lot about pre and post assessments. And a lot of times those are being used just for data analysis and in our time of evaluation, it, it probably lends itself more to teacher data that they can use, but how are those pre-assessments set up? Are we asking the questions that will allow us to have an understanding of where our students are at so we know what we have to cover so that we can not lecture everything? We don't front load everything. We really know what it is that no one knows anything about in this, right? Or they're not making the connections to from fourth and fifth grade to eighth grade, even though we know we had it. If we use those pre-assessments very thoughtfully, those are then ways that we can look at what needs to be scaffold, what needs to go deeper, and can we do less content but go deeper, knowing what it is, not just covering all the standards, but what our students need to make the connections with. And that's another area that I see the blending or the digital or personalizing hopefully in the future being used very intentionally and thoughtfully in that before you would have to give them a textbook chapter. Now we may be able to give them a four-minute video clip from YouTube or Discovery Education to activate that prior knowledge to be able to give them the setting to go through and do three days of a deep reading. But we have to know what it is our students don't know in order to make the right decision on what they need to get to it. So I see that as another advantage of technology and blending but it's a it takes a lot of time to get there. And again, it, it starts with shifting. Are we just covering content or are we really assessing where our students are at and then helping them go deeper with content and literacy? Because the thing is with the literacy, like you said, Erin, you couldn't take them deeper in their content because of the literacy. So, so mm-hmm. it really isn't a choice between the two. Time is the thing that we have to account for. So we have to find those ways of knowing what our students really need and what we can provide for scaffolding in less time than we used to, which I think technology can be one of our greatest tools to do that. But then we have to be willing to shift it and, and honor our students and honor learning in a way that allows that, that deep interaction. Shall we play a game? Hey, Rochelle, speaking of assessment... 
I think I know. You were waiting on it. You were no, sitting on that a couple. Of, wow. A couple of volleys back. Smooth, Aaron. Smooth. Do you? Before we get started, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna do this um, strategic stalling so Jeff can get his sound effects app loaded oh, and ready to rock. Excellent. But do you want to know how many Aaron got right, or do you want to just? Aaron's gonna beat me. I'm telling you right now, Aaron's gonna beat me. This was not the good showdown. Know. I'm telling you, she's gonna beat know. me. Rishnell, I have confidence. I in think you. she got most of them right. Do you want to know? Or she's you smart. Save it later? She's smart for a sparty. <laughs> that's probably the we nicest thing so she's one of those her. smarties Rochelle oh. we have a yeah how many we, did she when get when we were talking to Aaron <laughs> I'm going to throw this out there first and then I'll tell okay. you how many when we were talking to Aaron we said that maybe um, what's on the line is that the person who wins uh-huh. is, is good and the person who loses uh-huh. at McCall uh-huh has to wear the opposite school color mished shirt. Okay, well, I already wore a McCall green and white shirt last year to volunteer. I I was screaming and kicking, but I'm just saying. I was going to say, were you okay with it? Did you enjoy that experience? No, I complained (laughs) about it the entire time, but I'm just saying I did it. Um, I think that's fair. I don't have a problem with that. This is 2017, though, man. I'd people got to see you in Detroit in the green and white. I'd love to see Mastin in my vintage blue and gold (laughs) rocking that baby. (laughs) All right, Rochelle, there there are seven questions. All right. Aaron got four of them correct. Oh. And the question, I think, I, I made yours last week, but I'm relatively certain that they are the exact same questions that she had. Okay. They just pertain to U of M instead of Michigan State. All right. Many are multiple choice. Okay. The ones that I thought should be easy are not. So I might have to write. The, I might have to write the multiple choice down. We'll see. Okay. I got okay. a piece of paper okay. and a pencil. Yeah, All right. I know. Awesome. I told you. I'm getting like antsy and excited. <laughs> All right. Question one. The University of Michigan was founded in A, 1817, B, 1824, C, 1875, or D, 1855? A, 1817. I already used this. I know. I was like, I already used this as my, like, you know, why we're better. (laughs) That may have been the easiest one, though. Awesome. All right. Are you ready for question two? I'm ready for question two. Okay. Question two. U of M has how many buildings on its main campus? A, 243, B, 625, C, 432, or D, 575? Okay. Wait a minute. Give me those numbers again. 243, 625. 432, 575. How are we defining a building? I have no idea. I just found it on our website. Do you want me to use it in the form of a sentence? (laughs) No, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, so there might be one building, but it may have two names, even though it's, you know what I mean? 
I don't think pinball Pete's counts. <laughs> you take tests the same way I do, Rochelle. <laughs> right? This is okay. It's it's like but this could be right if they're thinking of it this way. I know. See, that's I'm shades of gray, man. I am always shades of gray. This is going to be a total guess. Um, the entire campus, like not main campus. So does that include North Campus? <laughs> <laughs> this, these are see look that far into the Michigan website. State has one sprawling campus. U of M has North Campus and regular campus and Central Campus. So, you know, does it include dorms? Are you are you stalling so that you have time to search this? No, <laughs> I, I, Googled, I Googled it and I'm coming up with nothing. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say. Um, I'm going to assume that it includes North Campus. I'm going to say 243. Oh, is it 432? 575. Wow. According to their website. That's According crazy. to their website. All right. All right. One for two. That so was question a three. This question, is a question validity is in question. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> question three. The mascot for U of M is. Oh my God, it's a Wolverine. Okay. <laughs> Two for three. All right. Approximately how many students att currently attend U of M? So this would include like undergraduate, graduate, um, satellite campuses, all that stuff. Satellite campuses too? Oh, I should, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, that makes a difference because um, U of M Flint's got about 9,000 and I think Dearborn's got 10 or 12. So it makes a difference. How many do you think U of M has? I have to come up with my own number? Like it's not a multiple here's your, choice? Here's your guesses. Here's the thing. When I pulled up there, I can't tell you the exact document because then you're going to Google it while I'm talking. <laughs> but when I pulled up a document that showed their entire student population, this is what it said. So here's some multiple choice. 40,000, 44,000. 50,000 or 60,000? 44,000. Three for four. Yeah. If you get one more right, you're tied. I don't know what that means. I don't know what happens in the event of a tie, but you've still got some questions left. We can have a smackdown right, if, we're, if we're tied. We can just have a smackdown. Let's do it at okay. McCall. All right. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Is that like a physical smackdown or is it like something that's a little bit more civil? Jeff, the, <laughs> the thing is, just the fact that we have these conversations make the boys of Mishad so uncomfortable. Aaron and I, <laughs> Aaron and I, really like our besties, and we just smack down about this, and it makes the boys so uncomfortable. We get private messages if we're getting too um, chippy with one another. Really, I'm not kidding. Ben, have to step yeah, in. Uh, well, it makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> This is good information for me to know. know. <laughs> All right, I'm ready for my next question. All right, question five. U of M is first in the nation for what graduate program? A, engineering, B, elementary and secondary education, C, business administration, or D, social work? Oh, seriously? <laughs> okay. You said 
elementary education, I, okay. engineering. engineering, and it was elementary and secondary, business administration, or social work. That is not any of their stuff. What? Uh, I'm going to say business. Yeah, <laughs> Aaron Masson would like me to point out to you that <laughs> Michigan State is first in elementary secondary. Well, I knew it wasn't <laughs> elementary education. I didn't guess that one. Social work. Social work. Okay. I, I'm. I'm gonna yeah. be quiet. One of one of my BFFs has her, her social work. Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, we Rachel. don't normally steer social workers to U of M. Now I know better. Right. But they can get their master's in it, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, their MSW. All right, question six. So you were at, we're at three for five. Question Ooh, six, here we go. Yeah. Who is the men's basketball coach? Oh, um, um, Beeline. <laughs> Just went blank. That's what? correct. That is correct. Four for six. All right. Do you, do you want to know who the swim coach is too in his Olympic um, history? Yes. Yes. Give it to us. <laughs> okay, can that count <laughs> in case I don't win? If I can just like throw that information out there, can that be my bonus question? <laughs> hey, Aaron. Um, Michelle beat you because she made up her own question and then answered it, and we counted it. <laughs> they were awesome are we tied now you're tied so there's one question okay. left so this is the tiebreaker all right are you ready i'm ready how many final four appearances has the men's basketball team had oh is it a six b seven c eight or d nine okay does this include the ones that were taken off the record it does not. <laughs> does the fact that I know that? That is, that is good information. I had to look at that, too, when I was doing my count. I was like, oh, oh not that one. <laughs> oh. Why wouldn't they count, Rochelle? <laughs> do you want to talk about that more? <laughs> um, I I do. Much, much like, never mind, I was going to go political. And I... And <laughs> And I am going to um, do what Jay Gross tells me to do all the time, which is edit, edit, edit. You can think it. You don't need to speak it. So anyway. That, Jay, Jay is a smart I know, dude. I appreciate I know. that mindset because I need that too. So if it's the ones that didn't count, then I would say five. What? What was it? Five wasn't an answer in, in the multiple choice that did I did. Did you give you. me multiple choice? <laughs> I did. I was so caught up in it. I didn't even listen to the multiple choice. What was my multiple uh. choice? Can I hear the answers and choose one? <laughs> Since I didn't choose the right one anyway. Six, seven, eight, or nine. Well, I think it's seven, but it's supposed to be five with the vacated. Hmm. I thought I count. I didn't count those. Is seven the answer? I yeah. Seven I, is the I stand answer. by. I think seven count includes the two that were vacated. 
I'm just going to go no, on Jack record as saying that. We got to do a, this. This plays under review. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the fact that I even know that we should check that, I think, again, those should be bonus points. The fact that I came up with the question as my lead in without even knowing it was a question. The fact that I didn't even attend and I still know all of this and beat Mastin, whatever. <laughs> See again. She just has to wear them. Ben, Ben's shivering right now and he doesn't know why. (laughs) I seriously did look this up and count, but I did this about a week ago, so now it's not exactly fresh in my brain. So it says final four appearances that there were seven. Oh, so these are appearances, not championships, right? Yeah, just final four appearances. They didn't say championships. So I know where you're going with that, Jeff. Let it go. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm just looking up the same stuff. So I was looking up championships. Uh-huh. Uh, it might have counted, Rochelle, because I was looking at it up top. I was looking at the years that they didn't count. So if you but go then it to doesn't, it doesn't calculate that in their official like in the record at the bottom. If you go to Wikipedia, go to Wikipedia, just put NCAA. That's where I am. Yeah, yeah. It has it has five, right? It's so at the bottom it says their NCAA indicates two vacant appearances history. not included in the total. So that's why I said your answer is seven, but that doesn't account for the two that were vacated, which would have made it five. Yeah. So you're correct. I, I think that Rochelle, uh, uh, after further review, <laughs> the, the, the ruling on the field is reversed. <laughs> it's reversed, and you win all the things. So and, bring the uh, vintage shirt to McCall for Mastin, right? Yeah. I was going to say, do you want to tell her? Yes. I feel like you should. I most her. certainly yes. will be given a very loud shout out on Twitter and on Facebook. <laughs> you have to. So we haven't aired her episode okay. yet. Okay. Oh, and, and I'll wait. And, and so we'll put her episode okay. out. Okay. And you can sit on this for a little bit. I'll just private and I'll, her and I'll I'll leave the public shaming for when it's they're they're both yeah. released. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. That was probably part of the disclosure I signed or something, right? <laughs> that, yes, that was in there, I believe. Like, should you be Aaron Madison, you cannot Yeah, I shoved that legalese in there this morning. <laughs> cannot reveal results or or outcome. Yeah, that's fine. I'll be quiet. You let you let me want, know when I can give the public shout out. I th- really, I don't think we care either way. Yeah, yeah, uh, that might be the only <laughs> thing they want to listen to. You better keep that in your back pocket. <laughs> oh. Well, Rochelle, we know that you are a busy lady, so we don't want to keep you too much longer, but we do appreciate you carving some time out of your day to chat with us. And we can't wait to see your pretty face. Oh, I'm so excited, right? It'll be nice. almost one month. Is it exactly one month away? It is. We're getting close. It is, yeah. Yeah, Um, a month from tomorrow, and I'll be spending half a day with you guys. I'm really excited about that. That will be cool. How did you get so lucky? Offer good content, man. I got to show up and learn about (laughs) open education resources. I've been being teased at campfires, and now I need some time to go in and dig around in them. So I'm excited about that. 
we're excited to have you there. And I, I don't think it's any secret. I think you can tell just uh, um, by listening that I really love talking to Michelle <laughs> and I could get lost in a conversation with Michelle really. Easily. I apologize to anyone that had to listen to me too much for this episode. I've been really, really good since we rebooted to uh, kind of asking questions and not talking too much myself. But Michelle just brings it out in me. We need to so river thank you walk, for being Jeff. you. We need to river walk. We do need to river walk. <laughs> It's been too I long. I, I I need to have more frequent non-recorded <laughs> yes. conversations with you so that I can think it and not say it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's what being a new dad does, right? You have to reprioritize. So, you know, I'm on the other end. Mine are off. Doesn't need me for anything. You're at the, you're at the beginning end. So we'll figure it out. Hello there. Today, we want to talk to you about asking questions because asking questions is a good way to find out about things like, uh, like, Cookies. Yeah. Observe. All right. I think it's time for our campfire questions. So we spent a lot of time with Rochelle talking about digital literacy and reading digital texts and how we help students work with that. But I think a lot of times teachers have this, this pushback or this feeling of, I'm not going to use digital texts all the time. So because nobody sent us a question again, um, we decided to kind of take on our own question this week of how do you balance online reading versus paper reading? So from my background as a social studies teacher, you know, obviously reading is important in any of your courses. There's a lot of reading in social studies though, and especially in eighth grade social studies when the content is early American history, there's a lot of really tough reading that is written in English, but just is is difficult for students to decipher. So I think for me, there certainly had to be a balance and there certainly wasn't one way that I went more than another in terms of online or paper reading. I think Rochelle made some great points when we were chatting with her about the fact that when students are tested, they're expected to do a lot of reading online. And I think as they continue to grow older and, you know, get into the working world and get into college, a lot of their coursework might be delivered online, even if it's a face-to-face class. So I think there's certainly a lot of value in online reading, but I think that there also has to be a lot of modeling, right? Just like we do with paper reading, it almost has to be even more intentional with online reading because when you're reading something from a website, right? I was reading an article today that Rochelle had shared with us and I was so distracted by the sidebar. There were ads, there were videos that started playing as I accidentally hovered over them. So it's almost like in addition to teaching students how to read and read deeply and read for meaning and content and bias, you almost have to teach them some self-regulation skills too, right? Like how do you not get distracted when there's this sidebar that's flashing all these, you know, pizzas and something from Amazon at you while you're trying to gain some, gain some knowledge and gather information. What about you? What do you think, Jeff? You know, it's a really good question. The way I approach it is probably different now than I did when I was teaching. When I was teaching I think that it was easier for me to find articles and link them off of my WordPress site and push students to the full-on digital text. It was easy for me to cobble together uh, resources from everywhere and bring them all together. And so I think that 
as a content expert, I didn't pay attention to the standard literacy development as much as I did digital literacy development. And even to a lesser extent, digital literacy development was kind of more organic in nature and more, you know, intuitive on my part, just being interested in it. It was more so like pushing my students towards resources that I thought were really rich and that I would want them to interact with uh, for social studies content learning purposes, right? And so I think I've always been a big believer that we, we wrestle with complex texts in order to learn social studies content. I think that especially given the amount of primary sources and, and secondary sources and just articles and everything. So like social studies is traditionally until the last, let's say, 20, 30 years, uh, a genre, a content area that is text driven. Wouldn't you say the same? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So wrestling with those texts have, has always been, to me, something of a necessity. And so I always kind of approached with, okay, I'm going to find like the things that really describe content well, and I'm going to figure out the scaffolds that I'm going to put on so that students can climb that mountain, right? Mm -hmm. I think what I've realized now as I've kind of grown as an educator and taken a deeper interest in literacy and digital literacy I now know that those things need to be intentionally thought of, that they can't be just afterthoughts of, of the content learning needs. We need to think of them in conjunction with it. And so I've kind of come to think about how it's necessary for, for students to, to wrestle with online texts because, like you said before, that's what the, that's the testing medium. And also that's just like, how we interact with the world now. Mm -hmm. That's how we learn. And it's and it's necessary. I think ultimately the historians, the the social studies conscious folks that that I'm trying to build as a social studies teacher, that ultimately I'm trying to get to a point where they're cooperating between related resources online in multiple tabs, clicking and going deep in, deep into the rabbit hole of learning through hyperlinks and and taking side side paths and everything like that. Like ultimately, I would love for my students to get to that level of intentionality where they're really soaking up everything in an online resource and and even finding additional online resources that support the one that I had sent them to in the first place, right? right. I think that that teaches really good research skills. It teaches uh, students to be critical of not just the text itself, but also credentialing the author and understanding the organizations that they uh, that these authors come from, picking up on cues of how websites are designed. Like you mentioned ads. Ads can be really distracting from the purpose of the text, right? Mm -hmm. But ads can be a clue as to the the kind of audience that usually engages with this particular resource, right? right? And especially when we get into things of political nature, it's important for us to to pick up on subtle cues of what the intended purpose of the writing is because eventually we want to get kids to a point where they're not just they're not just reading for understanding what is written. They're they're reading, understanding 
interpreting and deciding, you know, between what is hard fact and what is opinion. So that's that's where my mind usually is. But that being said, when you're developing classic literacy skills or you're teaching to uh, you're using a literacy resource, a section of text in order to initiate new learning for students, I've come to think that you've got to chunk that out and you've got to have them annotate it. And you've got to have them have conversations with each other about it. It's got to go through several iterations. It can't just be like you and I, where we might skim through and read a text and get what we need to get out of it and then move on to the next thing, right? They need We need to pause and let it breathe a little bit. And I think there's a lot of affordances to a physical chunk of text to kind of isolate all the noise and focus in on just this paragraph or these two paragraphs. Annotate that thing like crazy. You can write, you can draw all over it. No matter what application you have, you're always sacrificing some degree of autonomy in your annotations in order to make it a little bit more collaborative or order in order to make it be able to be shared with your teacher in order to get feedback on it. So if the if the intent is to teach annotation skills and then turn and talk with a person and kind of sort out your interpretations of things, I really think that the physical text has a lot of value. I think the the litmus test for me is, is this new learning and is this completely content focus? Do I want them to be completely content focused so they don't get distracted by some of the digital nuances of reading online? Then I'm going to I'm going to lean towards a physical copy of that text because it's going to let me easily chunk, it's going to let them easily annotate, and it's going to be highly collaborative if I put them next to one another. Mm-hmm. But if I want them to be a little bit more remote, I want them to work a little bit more individually, but connected. Um, If I want them to be challenged by the noise or look at multiple resources and and work on cooperating information, once I start like moving up that the the Bloom's Pyramid a little bit and and I'm having them engage with it a little little more deeply and this is like their third, fourth, fifth time with the content, I think that I start skewing digital a little bit more because I think that it allows a collaborative element uh, that the the traditional text does not. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting to me too, Jeff, to see you kind of reflect back on what would you have done differently because I know that there's certainly pieces that I think about that I would have done differently too. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of this research on, on reading with digital text is so new that we we didn't know about it when we were teaching, right? We thought we were using kind of the best practices. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hey, listen, Dean got a really, really nice mug from us. Pretty and I'm not afraid to say that because other people have said it's really nice. And Dean himself said that coffee tastes better in that mug. I don't know how that's possible, but it must add something to it that just makes your day even that much better. Yeah. Maybe it's like like Wonder Woman in liquid form. But just so you know, if you send us a Campfire Q via Twitter, via 
Instagram, the uh, whatever way you can holler at Aaron and I. We will incorporate it into our show, and we will send you some nice stuff for it. So please do that. And remember, we always put up the show notes that give you a few more links to things that we've chatted about in the show. So we'll include a link to Bounce, um, a little bit more about Mished. Rochelle talked about an amazing article from Maria Konnikova about how our brain works in digital reading. So we'll link that in there too. The tennis player? That's who I thought too. No, that's Kornikova. Konnikova. Oh. Yeah, close, huh? Yeah. So I thought that she was a tennis player and an educator. And a researcher. Who knew? (laughs) That would that would have been great. It would have been cool. But yeah, do that. And and make sure you subscribe so that you can hear us all the time. For me to yell at you and for Aaron to have that calm, soothing voice (laughs) that just makes you feel warm and comforted and like you can take on the world. Well, I like the last part. But mostly listen to me yell at you. Yeah. (laughs) And if you're feeling up to it, too, leave us a review in iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast so that they can learn alongside of you. And it makes us feel special, right? (laughs) I mean, obviously. I feel real special. So, all right, dude. Well, good chatting with you. Yeah. Good to talk. I'll see you later. Bye. (laughs) 